Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. How many of you have been enjoying this journey into the blessed lifestyle? Are you enjoying this? Well, let's carry on with this series then called The Blessed Lifestyle, and it's about how Jesus used to share his faith 2,000 years ago and how we can do it today. And BLESS stands for this. It's an acrostic, B-L-E-S-S, and this is what it means. Begin with prayer, the B. The E, or sorry, the L stands for listen with care. The E, eat together. The S, share Oh, sorry, serve, I'll get it. serve in love, and the S is share your story. And so we've been looking at how Jesus used to do this. We know that he began every day with prayer. We know that he would listen to people and find out what their needs were before he actually ministered to them. We find that he ate together with people, anybody and everybody, and he became known as a friend of sinners. And then we found out that he served in love. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I mean, Jesus had some pretty good gifts, wouldn't you say? Some good skills. I mean, you know, healing, miracles, deliverance, good stuff. More than you got, no doubt. But here was what was interesting about it. He always did it in love. He never turned anybody away. Did you notice that? If somebody had a need and he had the ability to deal with that need, he met that need. It was a remarkable thing. And that's why the crowds followed him. I mean, the crowds were everybody. You know, they didn't follow Jesus because he was some sort of celebrity that they wanted to shake his hand and take a selfie with him. That's what people do with me. That's my thing. (laughs) That's what you do when you don't have skills. But when you have skills like he did, then people came because he was full of love and full of compassion, and he met their needs. And I don't want to say that he had an ulterior motive. I think that'd be the wrong way to say it. But I will say this, that he had a higher goal and a higher purpose, and he was trying to help people find their way back to God. Would you agree with that? That was what he, I mean, everything he did was to point people to God, point people to the Heavenly Father, the creator of of heaven and earth. And there's this little principle, I've shared it with you before, and I'm going to share it again. It goes like this. Good works produce goodwill, which gives us an opportunity to share the good news. Did you catch that? I'm going to say it again. Good works, which is a good thing. Good works actually only gets us so far. It gets us to goodwill. We produce goodwill when we do good works. But it is that goodwill that gives you the opportunity to share the good news. So Jesus did wonderful things, good works. In fact, here's what the scripture said. It said how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. Notice he went around doing good. That doesn't mean he was doing well. You know how people say, oh, I'm doing good. No, that's incorrect grammar. You're doing well. Jesus did good. And what that means is he did good for others, and that produced goodwill. If Jesus healed you, you're going to listen to anything he has to say. Why? Because he has gained goodwill with you. Are you following this so far? It's like this Sunday school class. The teacher's talking to the class. They're a pretty smart group. And she says, so let me ask you a question. If I was to sell all my worldly possessions and give them to the poor, Would I go to heaven? And they all went, no. And she says, okay, okay. Supposing I was to take care of the widows and the orphans and the homeless people, would I go to heaven? They all went, no. She said, what is the one thing you have to do if you want to go to heaven? Little Johnny quickly shot up. You got to be dead first. (laughs) 
So what we're going to be talking about today is we're going to talk about serving in love, something that Jesus did, something that Jesus taught, and something that he tried to impress upon his disciples. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20, which is a very, very important story. And you, you all know the routine here. You've got Jesus, he's out doing stuff, and he's got 12 disciples traveling with him, and they're watching all of this stuff. And the funny thing about the Gospels, I don't know if you find it funny, was there was a lot of times these guys had their mothers along. Did you notice that? Jesus' mother was sometimes there, and James and John's mother was there. And so James and John's mother brings... James and John, the two brothers, their mother brings them to Jesus. Now, we know that the scripture calls James and John the son of Zebedee. And we know that Zebedee was their father. But Jesus didn't call them that. He called them the sons of thunder. And I've told you this before. I think thunder was the name of their mother, right? And I think every time that she showed up, Jesus went, oh boy, here comes thunder. (laughs) So anyway, one day they're sitting around and of course, here comes thunder. And and, Mrs. Zebedee's coming along. She's got her two boys in tow. And she says, I have a question for you. He says, what can I do you for? And she says, well, if it wouldn't be too much trouble, I'd like my two sons, James and John, to sit at your right hand and your left hand when you come into glory. And then it says, the other ten apostles were indignant. You know why? You know why they're indignant? Because they were jealous and they wished their mother had done this. Right? That's that's what was really going on here. So anyway, so she asked them this question. Kelly said in the right hand and the left hand. And so that's where we're going to pick up the story. We're in Matthew chapter 20. We're in verse 25. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I wonder if you caught this. That Jesus does not rebuke their selfish ambition, but what he does is he redirects the conversation and he redefines greatness. Isn't that what he did? He redefined greatness. He says, you know the, the rulers of the Gentiles. You all see them. You all know them. And here's what they do. They subject people. They rule over people. They exercise authority over people. But it shall not be so among you. He says, you want to know what true greatness is? True greatness is not ruling over other people. True greatness is not having people who are your subjects serving you. True greatness is to become a servant overall. And so what he was doing was he was contrasting uh, spiritual leadership or servant leadership with worldly leadership. He was contrasting servant leadership with narcissistic leadership. I'm not really joking about that. I want to tell you a story that you all know at one level, but I'm going to remind you of it. So there was a Roman poet in the days of Jesus. He actually lived at the same time Jesus did, and his name was Ovid. And he wrote a poem called Narcissus and Echo. And here's a, a picture drawing of some sort. Doubt he looked like that. Doesn't really matter. And he wrote the poem Narcissus and Echo. Narcissus was the most beautiful person that had ever lived, and he was looking for a mate that was comparable to him. And Echo wanted to be his mate. And everywhere that Narcissus went, he would repeat what he said. Hence, Echo, right? 
And, of course, Narcissus rejected Echo. And one day, he stumbles upon a still pool of water and sees his reflection and immediately falls in love with his reflection. And he longs to love this person and longs to want him, but he can't because it's just a reflection. And he was fixated and staring at the reflection and couldn't draw himself away, so he stayed there until he died. I guess he starved to death. I don't know. And in its place, or in his place, grew a flower, and the flower today is called the Narcissus, right? You've all seen this flower. And so that's the story, and here's what's fascinating to me. This poem was written when Jesus was 12 years old. By a contemporary poet of his day, people would have known this. I believe it was a social commentary on the rulers of the Gentiles. I think it was a little poke at them and their self-love and their self-importance. That's what it was back then. Today, we know narcissism is something very particular. People who are narcissists, they're, they're, they're proud, they're arrogant, they're self-centered, they're self-serving, they have a sense of self-importance, they will not take any kind of disapproval whatsoever, they demand absolute and excessive admiration, they're manipulative, and the worst part of all is they have no ability to show empathy to someone else. How many of you know one of these people? How many of you are married to one of these people? Don't put it in. <laughs> Please don't put up your hand. I had people this morning going like this in the early service. And, uh, you know, it was like this story, you know, this true story a couple of uh, days ago. A couple of weeks ago, I was doing a 60th wedding anniversary, and so the, the wife, I said to her, how is it that you've been managed to be married this long? She says, well, I guess we've both been in love with the same man for 60 years. <laughs> So I'm going somewhere with this. This whole narcissism thing is important. We have this, this culture of narcissism. We certainly see it in leadership. There was a book that came out a few years ago, and it was called The, the Narcissism Epidemic, Living in the Age of Entitlement. And this co-author, his name is Keith Campbell. He's a psychologist. And uh, it's sort of interesting that he says this whole narcissism thing is an epidemic today. And he says on one level, you know, it's a basic job requirement for a president of the United States. But I would go a little further than that. I'd say virtually every world leader you see anywhere, including close to home, is a grandiose narcissist. And they're of a certain variety that, you know, statistically they're like a half a percent. They're, they're not the majority of, of uh, the population. But Campbell points this out, that what happens is there's a garden variety of narcissists, and they do research in the schools, and we don't want to pick on young people, but he's in the university setting, and they, they, they do survey young people and do personality tests, and he's saying that these tests are now showing one in 11 young people are on the narcissism personality on that side of it, which is sort of an incredible thing that, that there is this sort of epidemic. That's, that's almost one in 10 young people. And he points out that a lot of the problem is related to social media because social media actually advances narcissism, right? I mean, what's it all about? You post things on Facebook or, or Twitter or TikTok or Instacrap or whatever these things are. And, and you post these things on there, and what are you looking for? You're looking for clicks, and you're looking for likes, and you're looking for followers. It's very narcissistic on some level, on a garden-level variety. It's, it's, you know, these people wanting and the self-centeredness. And then he goes on, I've listened to some interviews that were fascinating to me. Uh, he said a generation ago, the problem with young people was low self-esteem. 
And I'm so dumb, I thought that was still a problem. And apparently that's not a problem with young people, and the pendulum has swung the other way. We've gone from low self-esteem to narcissism in one single generation. And he blames, no offense people, but he blames parenting. He says, you can see what's happening in parenting. People say, oh, little Johnny, you're great, you're wonderful, you're awesome, you're amazing. And little Johnny has done nothing but be a brat. And we tell him how awesome he is, and then we put him in mini soccer, where they don't even keep score, and after every game, everybody gets ice cream, and they all get a trophy at the end of the year. And, you know, the, the message is, okay, you're all winners. You know, if you all get a trophy and you're all winners, you know what? You're really all losers is what you are because I don't think that's how sports works. And, you know, last night we had the coach of the Winnipeg FC Valor, like the soccer team. He was sitting in the front row. And so I'm going on and I'm talking about the way parents are parenting and these helicopter parents and how they're coddling kids and whatever. And he was just shaking his head like this. And so I said, were you disagreeing with me? And he says, no. He says, I see it all the time with these young players. They're so entitled. And he says, we have to teach them that losing is actually a good thing because it develops character and it prepares you for the real life where you have to face adversity. And so I, get, I, I started thinking about this. Jesus knew what narcissism was. Narciss, narcissist was something that was common to his age and that's what the rulers of the Gentiles were all about. And he says, it shall not be so among you. And so right now, I'm actually in the the middle of writing a book on leadership, hope to come out next year, and I've got a chapter, and this is just a working title, it's not the actual title, and it's called, Don't Be a Stupid Narcissist, just just a working title, so don't take offense to that. I could go with, don't be a nauseating narcissist, there's lots of, you know, options where I could go with this. And then you, I know some of you are thinking, you know, Pastor Mark, you've got some of these tendencies yourself. You know, I was a little worried about that. And so I, so I, went, to a, I went to a psychologist and she said to me, I think you have a narcissist personality disorder. And I said, you know, I have no idea what that is, but if I've got it, it's got to be a good thing. <laughs> And then she said this, she said, here's the problem with this, is that people with narcissistic tendencies, they tend to misread social indicators. I knew right then she was hitting on me. I knew what was going on. (laughs) Thank you for getting that. You do do know what a narcissistic cow says, don't you? Doesn't say moo, it says me, (laughs) me. So here's, here's the challenge. How are we going to how are we going to move forward in a narcissistic culture? And what is the antidote? Is the big question. And we know from Scripture that the antidote to anything is always the opposite spirit. And what we see, if we have a culture, a narcissistic culture, where people are self-centered and they're arrogant, then the opposite spirit would be serving and humility, would it not? And that's what Jesus' message was. He came into a world that looked a little bit like that on some level. This stuff has existed since the beginning of time. And he came as a servant of all, and he told us to do the same. So I'm going to throw it up on the screen. Here's the three things we're going to talk about. Serve and love. Three things. Number one, discover the virtue of serving. Number two, decide to use your skills to serve others. Number three, determine to give God the glory. So the first thing we have to do is we have to discover the virtue of serving. And I think Jesus spent a lot of time doing that with his disciples. When you read the Gospels, I mean, he was drilling this into them every single day, telling them the greatest of all was the servant of all. But then he modeled it in extraordinary ways. And I think one of the quintessential examples of that in the scripture was in John 13, when Jesus, after dinner, wraps a towel around his waist, kneels down in front of his disciples with a basin of water, and starts washing their feet. 
And I'll tell you what is so remarkable about that was that was the job of the lowest of the low of slaves and servants. Nobody was lower than the foot washer. And in fact, how did the disciples respond to that? Were they happy to have him do that? No, they, they, were, they, were, they resisted. They were, their sensibilities were offended. There's no way the master should be washing their feet. But he made them do it anyway. And he washed all their feet. And then he stood up and he says, I've done this as an example for you. You go out and do the same. Now let me ask you a question. Was he telling the disciples to go wash people's feet? That wasn't the point. We never see them washing people's feet. He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to understand the virtue of serving others. But there's a little bit of a confusing story also in the, uh, the Gospels that sort of contradicts this. And it's the story of Mary and Martha. And you all remember this story too. So Mary and Martha were sisters. And they seemed to live together in this house. And they had Jesus over and his disciples for dinner. You all remember this story. And so you've got Mary. She's sitting in the living room or wherever, the parlor. And she's sitting at Jesus' feet. And she's you know, listening to his stories and laughing at his jokes. That's how I imagine Jesus, by the way, a lot like me. And so, and so, you know, she's down there giggling and laughing and, you know, all happy. And where was Martha? Who remembers? She was in the kitchen making lunch for all these people. And she's getting hotter and hotter because little Martha Stewart is in the kitchen, you know, got little doilies for under the plates and she's just going to, everything's going to be perfect. And she's getting ticked at her sister. So she marks out and she doesn't get mad at Mary. She gets mad at Jesus. And she comes out and says... Tell little Miss Muffet to get off her tuffet and come and help me in the kitchen. (laughs) Jesus says, you're right, Martha. Uh, You know, you worry about so many things. Let me tell you something. Mary has chosen the better thing. And I mean, this is confusing to me. Well, here's, you need to understand something. Was he dissing the fact that she was serving? No, this was their time of visitation. This was their moment. If Jesus came over for lunch... Would you, would you spend the whole hour that he was there in the kitchen? Or would you spend the time, you order in, you phone Domino's, and you bring in pizza. He doesn't care what he eats. He's a very unfussy eater. And, and, and you spend time with Jesus. And that's what he was saying. Look at this is the only moment I have with her. We're taking this moment. You're so busy in the kitchen. You're missing your visitation. He was not dismissing the virtue of serving. Now, I'm going to tell you a fascinating story about this. So... Question for you. How many professional engineers do we have in the room? Any professional engineers? One, two, three, four, few, few in the room. Not to me, they're shy. They're not putting their hands up. So my son is an engineer. He's in the room today. And uh, we went to his graduation. It was the most fantastic thing I've ever seen in my life. And it's only in Canada. It is called the ritual of the calling of the engineer. How many of you have ever heard of this? Few people have heard of this. Most have never heard of this. I'll tell you why. It's a secret ceremony that you are not to divulge to any other human being. But you know what? If you're going to invite me to this, I'm going to tell the world about it. Right? I mean, not my fault. Right? I'm in the business of collecting stories. And as soon as this thing started, I started writing it down because it was the coolest thing I've ever seen. This is only in Canada they do it. And they had uh, Rudyard Kipling, the British poet, he actually wrote the ceremony. 
And it's the craziest thing you've ever seen. So these, they, they get their cap and gowns, they're all graduating, and then they pull out this giant steel anvil with a huge steel chain uh, attached to it, and then the oath begins, and they say, they line up these students, these men and women, and they say, now lay your hand on cold steel. And they laid their hand on cold steel, and repeat this oath after me. And I would repeat the oath, but for threat of death I will not. <laughs> Those engineers, they're a vindictive bunch. I'm not taking the chance because I saw a few of their hands go up. So then they go through this oath, and then you go, you meet an engineer, and you will see that they have a ring on their pinky finger, on their working hand. And that ring is not gold, it's not platinum, it's not silver. That ring is made out of iron. The same iron, it's a symbol of work, is what it is. And they put it on their working hand. And so this is a calling to the engineer to serve mankind. And Kipling, this was my favorite part of it, he wrote a poem about it based on the story of Mary and Martha. And this I can tell you without getting into trouble because it's a published poem. And here it is. I'm going to throw it up on the screen. This is, a, this is an abridged version of it. Understand that. The sons of Martha must wait upon Mary's sons. World without end, reprieve, arrest. They sit, referring to Mary, they sit at the feet. They hear the word. They see how truly the promise runs. They have cast their burden upon the Lord. And the Lord lays it on Martha's sons. Are you following this? You see, Kipling's being cheeky here. And he's talking about the other professions. He says, look, so you're the intellectual class, and you're going to sit at Jesus' feet, and you're going to hear the word, and you're going to luxuriate in that. But the engineer, this profession, we call to the good of humanity to serve humanity so the place doesn't fall apart. Where they're going to have the iron ring, the symbol of hard work, and they're going to serve the betterment of humanity and make this world a safe place. They are being called to servant leadership. You see, understand something. I loved, I loved this ceremony. I loved it. I was sitting there taking notes because I thought, this will preach. And guess what? It's preaching. And, and, and I thought, you know, here's how it goes. If serving is below you, then leading is beyond you. So my son told me this story about uh, one day t- their class had this speaker in. The speaker was Paul Sobry, and he had just become the CEO of New Flyer Industries here in Winnipeg, the bus manufacturer. And he told these, store, the, these students something interesting. He said, the very, very first thing I did as the CEO was I paved the employee parking lot. And everybody thought I was crazy. They said, why would you be paving the employee parking lot? How's that going to help our bottom line? How is that going to help our, our sales and our productivity? And he said this. He said, if we're really truly saying that employees are our greatest asset, why don't we treat them like that? And why are we not valuing them? And I'm going to value them by paving the parking lot. It costs them like a million dollars to pave this parking lot. And productivity and morale and everything went up because he served from above. That's servant leadership. And that's what we teach in this, in this church, that we teach people how to serve and why they must serve and why they must serve as leaders. And we have 200 volunteer leaders. And last week, we did a little ceremony of our own, and, and we uh, honored 61 people, leaders, who have been doing it for 20 years or more in the church. Can you believe it? 20 years. And we gave them a certificate of appreciation. And, of course, we have uh, over a 1,000 volunteers. We're a church of people that understands this, that we have discovered 
the virtue of serving. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this, is that we need to decide to use our skills to serve. We have, yeah, that's a decision. Now, Jesus did this. He used his skills. I know he had great skills, better than most of us do. But I want to read you a little verse here. It's, it's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Listen to this carefully. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. He has ordained that each one of us should walk in good works. That's what we are called to. That is, that is part of our responsibility. And you, we have, all have skills. We all have things that God has given us. And here's the thing that people forget, is the opportunities to serve are in front of us, our face every single day. See, what did Jesus do? I'll remind you. I'll say it again. As Jesus went about his life, every day walking through the streets, wherever he was, if there was somebody in need, he took care of that need. If someone came to him, did he ever refuse anybody? Ever turn anybody away? Not once. Not once. He met every need that was apparent to him. And we have opportunities that are in front of us every single day, and it's amazing how many times we walk right by them. So I'll give you an example. So a few weeks ago, Kathy and I were in the grocery store. There's this mom. She's got three kids. They're falling all over the place. She's got a grocery cart. The groceries are falling over the place. It was just a disaster. And I just sort of walked by as wide a swath as I could and kept on trucking. And then, of course, I lost Kathy. And I look around, and Kathy's helping this poor woman who was struggling. I didn't even see it, nor did I even notice it. And maybe, you know, some woman, you know, younger woman, probably creepy for me to do anything anyway. So I left it to my wife. But it was something she could do, something she noticed, something that she saw. There was nothing in it for her, but you serve the people that cross your path. So now I have different skill set than, than she does. And so, you know, give you a, one of my own examples. So my neighbor had the worst lawnmower in the world. It drove me crazy. Every day he went out there, 300 poles finally gets it started. And then it ran like this. It drove me crazy. This might be self-serving. I thought, I can't stand this any longer. And I went over and I said, you know what, that motor's not going to run right unless you clean the carburetor. He said, I don't know how to clean the carburetor, and I'm on a waiting list for a month to get into the shop. I said, can I clean the carburetor for you? He said, really? You know how to do that? I said, yeah, wheel it over to my garage. So he brings it over to the garage. I take his carburetor apart. He's watching me do this. I clean it all up, put it together. One pull, boom, away it goes. Right? He's happy. He has a clean. Now, let me give you a little warning here. Don't take apart your neighbor's carburetor if you don't know what you're doing. Right? <laughs> You you need to use your actual skill set. And if you know how to work on a carburetor, by all means. But don't just start taking stuff apart for people. They won't be blessed by that. But here's the thing. All you have to do is go through life and you'll see stuff. You could rake people's leaves or shovel people's snow or fix somebody's fence or take somebody a meal when they're in a family crisis or grieving the loss of a loved one. There's a million things. But people have so many excuses. They say, well, I'm so busy. And besides, I don't really have any special skills Really? Who do you think you are, Napoleon Dynamite? <laughs> How many of you know who Napoleon Dynamite is? You ever seen this movie? You've got to see this movie. It's a riot. Silly, ridiculous. Throw that Napoleon Dynamite at I don't even have any good skills. You know, like nunchuck skills, bow hunting skills, computer hacking skills. Girls only want boyfriends who have great skills. It's a great line. <laughs> and it's sort of true, by the way, guys. You should get some good skills if you want a girlfriend. But that's not what I'm here to talk about. <laughs> I'm here to talk about the fact that you all have skills. We all have things that we can do. And at the very least, here's what you can do. 
This is my suggestion for you that really don't think you have skills. Just go get a can of Flex Seal, and everywhere you go, you have your Flex Seal, and if there's ever a leak somewhere, you can patch it. Right? You can spray the... How many of you do not know what I'm talking about with Flex Seal? Do you people don't watch enough television? The, 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 the flex seal, here, show the picture. There he is, that's Phil Swift. He's the owner and spokesman of Flex Seal. He's got ads. I don't know how you can miss this. If you have a TV, you can see this guy. He has half-hour versions of these ads. They're fantastic. And Flex Seal will stop any leak ever. Just one spray and it's fixed. And so let's say, for example, let me tell you how this would work. So let's say the Red River is rising and you know somebody lives on the river and his house is about to be flooded. You run over and spray the windows and doors with Flex Seal and you'll save his house. Yeah, yeah, look at the picture. This is literally their ad. I'm not joking. You think I'm joking. Or let's say, give me another example. So let's say your, your neighbor accidentally installs a screen door in the bottom of his fishing boat, right? And he's going to be eaten by sharks when the boat sinks. Then you run over the flex seal and you just, you just spray the, the, the screen door and the thing will stop leaking. I mean, you really aren't tracking with me, are you? <laughs> Okay, speaking of boats, let me tell you a story. <laughs> that was a secret. I'm actually going somewhere with this. I really am. All right, so, so most of you know I'm a boat guy. Very passionate about boats, very informed about boats. And it started very early in life. I was 12 years old. And what had happened was my uncle showed up at the lake with a boat he had built with his own two hands. And it was, the, it was the 1960s, and this boat had great big huge fins like an old Cadillac. It was the most fantastic thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I thought, I one day will build a boat. I'm going to build my own boat. So I went to my dad, I'm 12 years old, and I said, Dad, I'm going to build a boat. Can you buy me the materials? He said, no. I said, will you at least buy the plan for me to build the boat? He said, no, you're not building a boat. So that was a huge disappointment for me for a 12-year-old that wants to build a boat. So, so then, this is the crazy part of the story. So I knew what kind of boat I wanted. I'd seen it in the back of the comic books, and it was called a Mighty Might. And it was a 10-foot long plywood little speedboat hydroplane. And so I decided if my dad was going to let me build a boat, I was going to pray for God to intervene and give me a boat. True story. There was a big storm one day in Lake Manitoba, and in the morning we went on the beach, and a hydroplane had floated up right onto our beach. Can you believe it? I looked up and said, thank you, Jesus. I mean, this should be a, this should be a message on prayer and faith. It really should be. But it, was, it isn't. It's about something else. And so this isn't the exact boat, this is, but this is exactly what it looked like. Turns out it wasn't a mighty might. It was a tiny titan, which was exactly the same thing. And it was in that shape. It was all rotten and beat up, and it float, had no motor on it. floated up. I don't know how long it had been floating around Lake Manitoba. A couple of years, maybe. And it was, like, really in bad shape and rotten. And so we stuck it in the water, and it immediately started sinking. So I knew I was going to have to seal this boat up, and Flex Seal wasn't invented. You, 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 I come back to that because this is important. So we went, <laughs> went into the cottage and I got a tube of window caulking and I went and caulked up all the seams, put it back in the water and it, and it floated reasonably well. So then my friend, a couple of doors down, uh, caught a couple of doors down, he had a three and a half horsepower motor. So we stuck the three and a half horsepower motor on it, fired that puppy up and off we went at three miles an hour. It didn't even get on plane. It's a hydroplane. It has to get up on plane. So I was pretty disappointed. And then I knew exactly what I needed. Do you know what I needed? More power is what you needed, Tim the Tool Man Taylor. More power. And my dad, I was so glad he was never around because I could do whatever I wanted. I don't know where he was, but he had a fishing boat with a 25 horsepower Merc. 
And I said to my friends, let's get the 25 and put it on the boat. So we couldn't even lift this thing. And so the four of us got over. We managed to somehow mount this thing on this. That boat was eight feet long. And we put, did I say 25? It was a 20 horsepower. We put this 20 horsepower Merc on this boat, put the gas tank in, which took up half the boat. And then we pushed it up. We were in four feet of water. And I couldn't wait for the maiden voyage. And so we were sitting up like this too, by the way, because of the weight of the motor. Anyway, I fired that puppy up. And I took off like a bat out of hell. And I, I mean, it went like a rocket. And I hit my first wave, and the boat broke clean in half. <laughs> I just broke it clean in half. And I was only in four, four feet of water, so I wasn't going to drown. But I had a choice. I was either going to save the boat or save the motor. And I thought about it for a couple of seconds, and I figured my dad probably would like me to save the motor. So we saved the motor. It didn't go under. We dragged the motor back. But I had caught the bug. And I have been working on and building and restoring boats for over 50 years since then. And I would consider myself an expert in this. Like, if there, I'm good at a few things, not very many, but this is one of them. And I always joke about it. And I say, there's no outboard motor I can't fix. So the problem is people keep on challenging me on this. <laughs> and so please don't do that. Don't bring me some 50-year-old motor that should be a boat anchor and ask me to fix it because I'm not going to do it. But people do ask me, and I fix a lot of boats for a lot of people. And so then one year, my nephew had a 20-foot Ranger fishing boat with a 225 Merck Optimax motor. That probably means nothing to you. Very temperamental motor. And it always gave him grief. It was always, uh, you know, stalling. He'd drive down the lake, it would stall. He'd get towed back, he'd get it going again, drive down the lake, stall, get towed back. Not very fun. And so he had spent about $8,000 at the marina trying to get it fixed. They put a new computer in it. They did everything to this boat, and they couldn't get it. He was so distressed and so, so disappointed with his boat. So he phoned me up, and he said, Mark, do you think there's any chance you can fix this, fix this motor? I said, of course I can fix it. I said, you bring it to me, I'll fix it, but if I get that boat running, you have to come to church on Thanksgiving. Deal? He said, deal. Because I said, you need to be grateful that someone fixed your boat, right? You got this? He said, yeah, deal, deal. So he left the boat with me for a couple of days. I mucked around with it for an hour, found a loose wire, reconnected the wire. The boat ran perfectly ever since. And you want to hear the end of the story? He didn't come to church. Yes, that's how I felt. He was so thankful and so grateful. Sometimes you don't get the reward you want. That was all I wanted was him to come to church, and he did not come to church. I'm still pressing him on it. It was only five years ago, so he might still come. Which brings me to my last point. So here's what we do. First of all, we discover the virtue of serving. Secondly, whatever skills you have, and you all have them, you, you decide you're going to use them to serve other people. That was the whole point of that big, long, important story. And then the last and final thing is this, is that you determine to give God the glory. See, here's what we find Jesus did. He always gave God the glory. Am I right? Whenever he healed someone, whenever there was a miracle, whenever the blind was restored, always pointed that person to God. Always helped that person find their way back to God. Never without fail. Am I right? Never did anything without pointing them back to Jesus. Now, let me, let me show you a little verse. One more verse here. Really important. Listen to this. It's uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Sermon on the Mount. He says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Did you catch that? 
Being the light of the world is letting people actually see your good works and then pointing them to glorify the Father. Now, you don't have to get weird about it. When you're giving God the glory, don't get weird and crazy and creepy about it. You just, you know, let them see the dots and let them connect the dots. Throw out a few breadcrumbs. So I'm just going to give you one final story here to cap this up. You'll probably get a kick out of it. So a few years ago, five, six years ago, I don't remember when exactly, uh, we were going to Florida. We were going to southwest Florida. Some, some of you know that we go in there and do a, a study leave. And I had just finished writing my book, A Greater Purpose. I was going back to do some more writing. And what had happened was that fall before we went was Hurricane Irma. And Hurricane Irma was a direct hit on southwest Florida. A bunch of, most of the houses were damaged in one way or another. And so when we were heading down there uh, a couple months later, I was packing the trunk and I put my roofing tools in the trunk of the car. And Kathy says, what are you bringing all these tools? I said, these are roofing tools. She says, why are you bringing roofing tools? That's another skill I have. I, I did construction all the way through Bible school, so I know a few things. Not great, but a few things. So I said, we're going to do a hurricane zone. 75% of the roofs were damaged. And, uh, you know, I know it's a mess down there. You never know. I just have this hunch. I just have this feeling I might need these tools, so I'm going to bring them. She went, all right. So anyway, we get down there, and it's true. The roofs are all covered in tarps and whatever. And we, we were staying in this condominium building. It was three stories high with a shingled roof. And uh, I talked to the president of it, and I said, so what's the deal with the roof? I can see by looking at it, it's damaged. And uh, he said, yeah, we got our insurance claim. It's already come in. It's $89,000 to put on a new roof. But we can't do it because we can't get a roofer. You can't hire a roofer. And they tell us it might be two or three years before we can find somebody to fix the roof and replace the roof. I said, well, it just so happens I brought my tools with me. And I said, can I go up and have a look? So they put, I had to, it's 30 feet high. They had put up two ladders for me to get up there. And I went up there and looked. Mostly it was ridge caps and some shingles that had flipped up in the wind and snapped. And you can reinsert new shingles. There's a way of doing that. And so I came down. And I said, I can fix that roof. I can probably fix that roof in one day. And so I gave them a list, a materials list. And I said, go buy these. So they went and spent $1,500 on materials. That's all. $1,500, brought them down, put the ladders up. I humped those shingles up to that roof. And I got to work. So, you, you, know, you know what Florida is, right? It's God's waiting room. There's all these old people there waiting to die. And, uh, and so, <laughs> so, I'm, so I'm up on their, the roof, fixing their roof, and they all heard about this. And one by one, they're coming out to the parking lot, and they're putting out lawn chairs, and they're all sitting there. This is the best show they've seen in a long time. And they're all looking at the roof. They brought out their coolers full of beer. They're having a tailgate party. I'm up on, on the roof, shingling their roof. Well, they're having a tailgate party in the parking lot with beers and the barbecue running. Woohoo! Drinking and cheering me on and stuff. And I'm up there doing this work. Six hours later, I come down. And I'm a hero. I am a hero. I have fixed their roof for $1,500. That meant that $87,500 went into the reserve fund for a future roof someday, some way. And so they were so happy, and we never paid for lunch for the rest of the time we were there. People were breaking us bread and bringing it over. They gave us a gift certificate for a dinner cruise on one of the ships that goes out of the port there. It was fantastic. And so then they all discovered that I was a pastor and what I did, and I'd just written this book called The Greater Purpose, and I had brought a box with me, and I handed them out one by one, and every resident in that building got a copy of A Greater Purpose, and every morning you'd get up and look out, and all around the pool were these old people reading A Greater Purpose by Mark Hughes. 
<laughs> and I had so many opportunities to share my faith because I served in love, and that's how we changed the world, by serving others. Let's stand together. All right. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I know in a room this size, there are people who have not invited Christ into their life to be their Lord and Savior, and I want to give you an opportunity to do that. This Jesus that I talk about, he is amazing, and he's everything that he claims to be and everything that I say he is, but you need to have a personal relationship with him. And if you've never had that definitive moment where you've invited Christ into your life, I'm not asking you were you baptized as a child or have you gone to church. I'm asking you, do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And if you have not invited him into your heart, today would be the day to do this. And I make this really simple. We don't call people forward. We don't ask them to say anything publicly. And uh, right where you are with every head bowed, if that's you and you'd like to make a decision to be a follower of Jesus, I want you to raise your hand so I can see it. Nobody's looking around. Just take a moment right now. Just raise your hand. Let me see those hands. And let me uh, indicate. Thank you in the front, in the side, the back. Thank you. All right, fantastic. You can all put your hands down. Um, I'm wondering if the rest of you will indulge us yet one more time to pray with these people. Probably the most important moment in their life. So we never want to belittle that. So let's pray together, will we? Lord Jesus, I thank you for the work of the cross. I thank you that you died for me. You gave your life a ransom for me and washed away all my sins. And then you rose from the dead and you forever lived to be my Lord. And you've made me your follower. And you've taught me to serve and to minister to others and then lead them into this relationship with you. And I thank you that today I'm a Christian and I'm on my way to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give Jesus a big shout. Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.